Welcome to the June 22nd, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll report on the findings from a Phase two trial of bone marrow transplantation as initial therapy for patients with severe aplastic anemia. Learn more about macrophage metabolic rewiring in sickle cell disease and discuss the utility of a PET radiomics-based model in predicting outcomes in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Alternative Donor Bone Marrow Transplantation with Post-Transplant Cyclophosphamide as Initial Therapy for Acquired Severe Aplastic Anemia by Amy E. Desern from the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center in Baltimore and colleagues. Acquired Severe Aplastic Anemia, or SAA, is a rare hematopoietic stem cell disorder characterized by pancytopenia. Bone marrow failure, a hallmark of SAA, results from autoimmune destruction of hematopoietic stem cells. Without definitive treatment, Mortality associated with SAA may reach up to 70% and most often occurs due to fungal infections. Other complications include hemorrhage, evolution to clonal myeloid diseases such as MDS, or transfusional iron overload. The standard of care for SAA in the first line is immunosuppressive therapy with antithymocyclobulin and cyclosporin, except for patients younger than 40 years who have an HLA-matched sibling donor for bone marrow transplantation. The rates of hematopoietic response after immunosuppressive therapy are approximately 70% to 80%. Patients who fail this approach typically require bone marrow transplantation. The outcomes after transplantation have steadily improved over the years, with long-term historical survival of approximately 90% in patients younger than 20 years, and 75% in older patients. Unfortunately, immunosuppressive therapy-related complications, such as the production of donor-specific antibodies, or MDS, associated with monosomy 7, may negatively affect the chances of a positive outcome after BMT, as well as donor options. In the current study, the authors report on the outcomes of uniformly treated patients with severe aplastic anemia who had alternative donor BMT with post-transplant cyclophosphamide as their initial therapy. The study included 20 patients with either acquired or inherited SAA enrolled on the trial between August 2016 and July 2020, as well as seven patients treated after the trial with the same standard of care. Eligibility criteria included adequate performance status and organ function, ability to provide informed consent, and the availability of a related HLA haploidentical donor. Enrolled patients could not have received prior immunosuppressive therapy. The conditioning regimen consisted of rabbit antithymocyte globulin and fludarabine. Cyclophosphamide was given as post-transplantation graft-versus-host prophylaxis. In addition, at day minus one, all patients received either 200 centigray or 400 centigray of total body irradiation, administered as a single fraction dose. The primary endpoints were the feasibility and safety of initial BMT therapy. 
Secondary endpoints included overall survival at one year post-BMT, neutrophil and platelet recovery, graft failure, grades 2 to 4 acute or chronic graft-versus-host disease, immune reconstitution, and the rate of specific infectious complications. The median age of patients was 25 years, with a range from 3 to 63 years. More than 35% of study subjects were from underrepresented racial or ethnic groups. The median follow-up duration was 40.9 months, with a range from 29.4 to 55.7 months. The cumulative incidence of grade 2 to 4 graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, at day 100 was 7%, while the incidence of chronic GVHD at 2 years was 4%. The overall survival for 27 treated patients was 92% at 1, 2, and 3 years post-treatment. The 7 patients who received a lower dose of total body irradiation, 200 as opposed to 400 centigrade, were more likely to have graft failure compared to patients who received the higher dose. Namely, 3 of 7 versus 0 of 20 patients experienced graft failure in the two groups, respectively. Two patients died post-transplant. In both cases, infection was the cause of death. A third patient had secondary graft failure, but was 100% chimeric at the time of report writing, after a second HLA haploidentical donor and identical conditioning platform. Taken together, HLA haploidentical bone marrow transplant with post-transplantation cyclophosphamide and 400 centigrade total body irradiation yielded 100% overall survival with minimal GVHD in 20 patients. The authors concluded that this approach avoids the complications of immunosuppressive therapy and its low, failure-free survival, while the use of haploidentical donors expands access to bone marrow transplantation for patients from underrepresented racial or ethnic groups. In an accompanying commentary, H. Joachim Deeg, from the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, Washington, notes that the findings outlined by Desern and colleagues show impressive results with transplantation from HLA haploidentical family members in patients not previously exposed to immunosuppressive therapy. Furthermore, the incidence of GVHD remained very low in the studied population, with an overall survival of 92%, an incidence of acute GVHD and chronic GVHD of 7% and 4% respectively, and no graft rejection, the outcomes are very impressive. However, several important questions remain. There is a lingering concern about infections and the potential long-term effects of this approach on the growth and development of young patients and the fertility of adult patients. Another concern is the risk of developing new malignancies either hematological or solid tumors. Deeg concludes that additional studies in larger numbers of patients with longer follow-up are needed to draw any definitive conclusions. He also notes that it would be interesting to conduct prospective trials comparing upfront BMT from HLA haploidentical donors with immunosuppressive therapy, possibly combined with l -trombopag. Finally, future studies should investigate whether a regimen used for HLA haploidentical transplants in patients with aplastic anemia could also be used for patients receiving HLA identical transplants. Next up, 
We'll discuss the findings from the Blood article entitled, Macrophage Metabolic Rewiring Improves Heme-Suppressed Aferocytosis and Tissue Damage in Sickle Cell Disease, by Richa Sharma from the New York Blood Center and colleagues. Macrophages have key roles in the regulation of heme and iron homeostasis by supplying iron for erythropoiesis through ferroportin-mediated iron recycling. Furthermore, macrophages are responsible for the removal of senescent and or damaged erythrocytes and the clearance of free hemoglobin and heme through receptor-mediated endocytosis of hemoglobin-haptoglobin and heme-hemopexin complexes. Moreover, macrophages actively participate in the resolution of tissue damage via immune cell recruitment and apoptotic cell clearance, a process called aferrocytosis. This plasticity and ability to acquire different functional phenotypes allow macrophages to maintain hemostasis through a range of inflammatory and anti-inflammatory processes. Chronic inflammation, mediated by heme-activated pro-inflammatory macrophages, is a hallmark of sickle cell disease. In SCD, macrophages are stressed due to the shortened half-life of red blood cells and chronic exposure to excess heme because of saturation of haptoglobin and hemopexin binding capacity. Previous studies have uncovered that excess heme shapes the inflammatory response of macrophages, but it remains unclear how it affects their functional phenotype. It has, however, been established that aferrocytosis is a key process in the resolution of tissue damage through the immunologically silent removal of apoptotic cells and the production of anti-inflammatory cytokines, IL-4, and IL-10. In the current study, the authors conducted a series of in vitro experiments on marrow-derived macrophages and in vivo experiments in sickle mice to better understand how excess heme affects macrophage function and aferrocytosis in SCD. Flow cytometry analysis of macrophages and QRT-PCR were performed according to previously published protocols. The findings revealed that heme strongly alters the macrophage functional response to apoptotic cell damage by exacerbating immune cell recruitment and impairing removal of apoptotic cells through aferrocytosis. The defects in aferrocytosis, coupled with the heme-mediated excessive influx of leukocytes, contributes to tissue damage and sustained inflammation. Specifically, the authors demonstrated that impaired aferrocytosis leads to hepatic accumulation of secondary necrotic cells and prevents macrophage anti-inflammatory rewiring, thereby facilitating chronic inflammation and further aggravating tissue damage. This mechanism is dependent on heme-mediated activation of TLR4 signaling and suppression of the transcription factor PPAR-gamma and its co-activator PGC1-alpha. Furthermore, these changes reduce the expression of aferrocytotic receptors and promote mitochondrial remodeling, leading to the coordinated functional and metabolic reprogramming of macrophages. This ultimately leads to limited apoptotic cell engulfment, impaired metabolic shift to mitochondrial fatty acid beta-oxidation, and, as noted, reduced secretion of anti-inflammatory cytokines IL-4 and IL-10. The authors further demonstrate that impaired phagocytic capacity is recapitulated by macrophage exposure to sickle patient's plasma and improved by hemopexin-mediated heme scavenging, PPAR-gamma agonists, or IL-4 exposure. 
They conclude that therapeutic improvement of heme-altered macrophage functional properties via heme scavenging or PGC1-alpha PPAR-gamma modulation significantly ameliorates tissue damage associated with SCD pathophysiology. In an accompanying commentary, Emanuela Tolosano from the University of Torino in Torino, Italy, notes that Sharma and colleagues provide novel insights into the cellular and molecular mechanisms underlying liver damage in sickle cell disease. Specifically, they demonstrate that impaired aferrocytosis is the key driver of hepatic damage and chronic inflammation in SCD. Hemolysis plays a major role in this process by reprogramming macrophages towards highly inflammatory and poorly aferrocytic cells through the coordinated suppression of aferrocytosis receptors and a metabolic shift towards aerobic glycolysis. Finally, the authors demonstrate that reversal of these macrophage defects through reactivation of the PPAR-gamma PGC1-alpha pathway leads to a therapeutic benefit in SCD, ameliorating inflammation and hepatic damage. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Baseline Pet Radiomics Outperform the IPI Risk Score for Prediction of Outcome in Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma by Jacoba Ertnik from the Cancer Center Amsterdam in the Netherlands and colleagues. Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma, or DLBCL, is the most common subtype of aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphoma in adults. Approximately 20 to 50% of patients are refractory to standard chemoimmunotherapy or relapse after achieving a complete response. The advent of effective immunotherapies, including CAR T-cells and bispecific antibodies, has made the selection of high-risk patients suitable for these therapies a priority. The International Prognostic Index, or IPI, is the most widely used prognostic index for patients with DLBCL. However, studies to date have demonstrated that IPI, Revised IPI, and National Comprehensive Cancer Network IPI all have limitations in identifying high-risk patients with a long-term survival below 50%. Thus, there is an unmet need for more accurate prognostic models. Several recent studies have explored the potential of baseline metabolic tumor volume, or MTV, extracted from 18F fluorodeoxyglucose positron emission tomography CT as a predictor of outcome in DLBCL. The results have consistently shown that MTV is inversely related to overall survival and progression-free survival. MTV reflects the 18F FDG avid tumor burden, but does not incorporate phenotypical features like spatial distribution, heterogeneity, or the shape of lesions. The authors have previously developed a prediction model called Clinical PET that incorporates MTV, the peak of the standardized uptake value, the maximum distance between the largest lesion and any other lesion, performance status per the WHO criteria, and patient age, using data from the HOVON84 trial. The objective of the current study was to externally validate the Clinical PET model developed in the HOVON84 trial using 887 patients from the PETRA database and to compare the performance of this model to the currently used IPI. The study included adult patients with de novo DLBCL 
with a baseline 18F FDG PET scan and two-year follow-up data. The patients were originally included in seven individual studies, and their data was pooled in the Petra Consortium Imaging Database. The predictive value of the following two models was tested. One, the IPI risk score using low, low-intermediate, high-intermediate, and high-risk groups. And two, the clinical PET model as developed in the HOVON84 trial. Model performance was evaluated using the Area Under the Curve, or AUC, and diagnostic performance with the positive predictive value, or PPV. Using two-year progression-free survival data, clinical PET yielded a significantly higher AUC compared to IPI, namely 0.71 versus 0.62. Similar results were obtained using a two-year time to progression. In comparing IPI to clinical PET, high-risk patients had a two-year progression-free survival of 61.4% compared to 51.9%, with an increased positive predictive value from 35.5% to 49.1% respectively. Furthermore, 66.4% of high-risk patients were free from progression or relapse based on IPI, compared to 55.5% based on clinical PET, with an increased positive predictive value from 33.7% to 44.6% respectively. Taken together, these findings reaffirm the predictive value of the original clinical PET model. Specifically, clinical PET remained predictive of outcomes in six independent, first-line DLBCL studies and exhibited better performance than the currently used IPI. In an accompanying commentary, Bruce Chesson, from the Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders in Bethesda, Maryland, notes that Ertnick and colleagues successfully validated the clinical PET model developed in the HOVON84 trial using a large number of patients from six different clinical trials. Specifically, clinical PET was superior to IPI in distinguishing patients unlikely to do well with respect to two-year progression-free survival and an overall improvement in performance of 10%. However, even with this improvement, 51.9% of the most unfavorable patients were still free of progression or death at two years indicating that there is still room for improvement in the model's predictive capability. Chasen suggests that incorporating additional prognostic factors in the future should further enhance the model's performance. For novel prognostic tools to be useful, all the components must not only be validated, but also widely available. He concludes that research aimed at improving treatments and uncovering novel predictive biomarkers is still needed to improve the outcomes of patients with DLBCL. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.